Hello and welcome to the Talk Nerd to Me podcast. In this episode, we are releasing from the Carrick Institute Vault Part 2 of Professor Carrick's discussion on neurology applications for chiropractic towards posture and gait. We hope you enjoy the show. Chiropractors address structure and function probably more so than any other uh, professionals. When we look at the activities of humankind in regards to the neurological system, we realize that any lesion in the central nervous system or peripheral system can result in a disequilibrium or an inability to maintain a posture uh, appropriately to initiate gait and other types of functions. We know that lesions of the medial brainstem or decreased aspects of integration as a consequence of peripheral neuropathic disorders, of joint angulation, of hypotonia, or central brain or cerebellar lesions uh, can change the activation of the axial muscles of the vertebral column, as well as the proximal muscles that would initiate a gait, make your feet move, be able to allow you to catch a ball. Uh, we know that the tectospinal system in humankind is a well-developed system that results in movement of the head and neck, especially when you see something or you hear something. And this, of course, is dependent upon where you perceive a visual or an auditory stimulation is coming from. So it's very important for chiropractors to check vision and hearing in their patient, not only to see if they can hear you or if they can see you, but to ascertain if they've got a bias or if they have a distortion of either a visual or a sound image. Slight uh, ocular manifestations or pathologies and slight auditory pathologies can result in gross changes in the activation of the tectospinal activities with angulations of joints and twists of the head and neck and painful types of activities from torticollis to uh, dystonic types of movement disorders. We know that when we look at um, the nervous system that most people don't have tumors or strokes uh, most people have got physiological lesions, which means to say they're soft lesions due to aberrancies in the activating system. If there's a different tonus from one side of the body, there'll be a different activation of their postsynaptic structures so that the majority of input to the nervous system comes from the vertebral column. Why this happens is pretty clear as we look at our own evolutionary reality. Uh, sometimes it's dark outside, so the human brain is not dependent solely on vision. It would be a poor environmental uh, stimulator to cause the basic activation of the brain continually. And also sometimes it's silent, so the auditory system is really not the primary one. But we always have one environmental stimulation, whether awake or asleep, and that is the stimulation of gravity which holds us to the earth and gives us distortion of joints and gives us a resultant activation of different muscles and different feedback. But the feedback due to a gravitational distortion is ultimately dependent on the previous uh, central state of the entire neuraxis such that 
decreased tonus on one leg versus the other or one side of your spinal column versus the other is going to give you a different activation of one side of the cerebellum in relationship to the other with resultant changes in the integrity of brain function or a difference between the left and right brain and then a difference in your ability to gate the basal ganglionic direct and indirect pathways which will give you resultant motor aberrations that you're going to see with aberrations in power, strength, and the ability to function as a human being and realizing that uh, not only a gait and posture, but your autonomic activities, your ability to digest your food, the ability of your heart to pump appropriately, the caliber or diameter of your arterial vascular system. So uh, when we have aberrations in the cerebellum uh, because of decreased central firing or because of maintained positioning, such as when a vertebral segment is fixed in an individual position, a hypokinetic movement disorder, a joint fixation, or you could use the term subluxation if you wish, or perhaps it is superior to say a joint position error. That joint position error results in a different output of the cerebellum, and this of course is a medial brainstem type of concomitant that affects the brainstem reticular formation that has autonomic consequences of heart rate, blood pressure, a variety of other things that the chiropractor must address. The central vestibular pathways are very rich. It is these pathways that go upwards to the eyes and downwards to the ventral horn cells that fire the muscles that uh, cause the vertebral segments to be in a certain position and also integrate a, a feed-forward effect up to the mesencephalon and to the striatum that will gate the basal ganglia and give us our ability to stand and walk and eat and talk and a variety of other things that are very, very exciting uh, for us. So when you see your patients, you really must ask them questions of changes in gait. Is there any weakness or changes in their, in their motion? Is there any difficulty in walking or getting out of a chair? Did there have any uh, problems with family members? Is there any hereditary or genetic uh, basis? And you must be able to assess uh, quite clearly uh, where problems are coming. For instance, is this individual's condition peripheral or central? For instance, a person may come into you because they've twisted their ankle, uh, and you may wrongly think that this is an orthopedic problem and not a neurological problem, but the fact that they twisted their ankle is, is means to say that the ability of their body to react to a perturbation was not appropriate, or they might have had a previous hypotonia, or they might have had a previous center of pressure aberrations, and these are brain-based effects. So in an ankle injury, or a knee injury, or a back or neck injury, you really owe it to yourself to use brain-based types of treatment. What are they? Those are treatments that use different modalities to evoke a different firing rate, of the brain to gate that basal ganglionic output so that the activation or inhibition of the thalamocortical pathways that govern your motor strength and your abilities to react is more appropriate to maximize your own individual human uh, potentials. So we talk about suprasegmental motor control, which is integrated and very dynamic. Uh, we know that cerebellar disease, whether the individual uh, maybe has drank too much over a period of time, or whether they have a genetic disturbance, or whether they have vascular disease. For chiropractors, of course, the cerebellum is very richly involved 
with what we do. Recent uh, uh, problems with the understanding of vertebral basilar insufficiencies and strokes have scared the public and many chiropractic practitioners unnecessarily. We know that proprioceptive pathology can also result in in different conditions of posture and gait. In other words, uh, any condition of the nervous system is going to have a motor consequence, which is why muscle testing of strength, of movement, of analysis of the angulation of joints is so very, very important. We know that injuries that are involved with tripping, stumbling, falls, uh, all of these things can hurt the person and bring them to see you. So when you look at whatever injury you have, you must consider an underlying postural or gait disturbance. It just makes sense. And then we have to learn about mechanisms to address those activities. The other thing that is very important for us is to address the fear of falling, especially in the elderly. We know that uh, older folks uh, will fall. It's the largest cause of death in that population. But Besides the falling and the death and the morbidity and the hip fractures and other types of things from head injuries on down, it is the loss of autonomy that has a sociological consequence. And the chiropractor must be able to address this by increasing the individual's ability to, to function correctly. So when you look at your patients, you want to look for any cautious types of movements, changes in lifestyle, and address them and give them activities that will allow them to do things much better. For instance, a, a simple neurological test, which is a sit-to-stand test, where you would get the person to sit, cross their arms, and stand. Observe if there's a deviation from one side to the other. We have a timed sit-to-stand test where we want to see how long it takes them to get up and to get down. And there's a certain uh, chart that will tell you if they're normal or they're abnormal. A lot of times when people stand up, they have vasovagal concomitants or their blood pressure will drop down and they won't have a baroreceptor response that is appropriate and they can get a little woozy or fall. They may lose bladder control. They don't want to go out with the kids because they're afraid that they may uh, urinate in, in public and a variety of other sorts of things. We did a very large study at the AARP convention last year with 700 subjects the American Association for Retired People, and we measured sit-to-stand with platform posturography. That work is in publication right now, but basically we find that some of these folks, when they go from a sitting position to a standing position, need to have six or seven seconds before they can uh, return to their previous level of maximum stability. Even though that maximum stability wasn't very good, it takes them six or seven seconds to get back up there, which means to say if they start walking or trying to move, before that six to seven seconds, they have a greater probability of falling. One of the things that you can do, of course, is to uh, measure these things, get them to sit, check their blood pressure, get them to stand up, check their blood pressure, look at how long it takes to get up to normal. Individuals that have problems uh, getting out of a chair, you want to give them hip extension exercises. Very, very simple. That is going to help you give a greater feedback to their brain and stabilize them. And this, of course, is a brain-based treatment that is common across all types of individual uh, disciplines and marvelous things that you can do, of course, to help serve humankind. Now, what does the patient 
perceive when he or she has weakness of their legs. They're going to tell you that they're stiff in their legs, that their legs are difficult to control. They've got a mind of their own. They'll tell you that they're heavy. Uh, they'll tell you the leg may give away, that the leg drags, that they have uh, a history of a fall or an individual uh, stumble. And that's going to say, hey, I've got to look at these activities. And of course, you can rehab them by giving them specific exercises to address uh, uh, motor rehabilitation of limbs that are weak, but also give them complex exercises, moving their feet, for instance, in figure of eights, moving their hands in figure of eights, complex types of movements on the side opposite of decreased brain activity uh, to increase those brain-based gating of the basal ganglia. We know that in order to to stand and move that we need to coordinate a whole load of muscle groups. So we want to check motion in a variety of different uh, directions and complexities. We know that an individual that has a hemiplegia, whether it's soft or whether it's hard and spastic, uh, can have things such as scraping their toe on the ground, tripping, uh, have a little bit of a foot drop weakness. These are things you see in a very high majority of all of your patients. For instance, uh, people can come in if they've got weakness of knee extension, a simple uh, weakness of, of knee extension in a pyramidal distribution or from a peripheral neuropathic disorder. They're going to tell you that their legs are going to give away when they're standing or they're they're walking down the stairs. Uh, if they've got weakness of ankle plantar flexion, they're not going to be able to move their foot forward when they're walking, and they're going to develop a shallow gait. So these people, you're going to give them plantar flexor exercises. If their legs are giving way, you give them knee extension exercises. Very, very uh, important types of activities. Uh, individuals that have proximal muscle weakness, well, it's usually caused by a primary myopathy, but you're going to treat them. Uh, they're going to have difficulty climbing a chair or, or uh, stairs or, or standing up from a seated position. So you're going to give them these proximal muscle exercises, primarily extensor weaknesses for people that have difficulties uh, getting out of a chair can really uh, change a life and, and save a life by preventing an individual fall. We want to look at our patients and see, hey, how fast can you walk? Have you seen a difference in your speed? We know that slowness of walking is associated with a whole load of neurological syndrome. So when you see a patient in your office, make sure you're just not seeing him or her uh, on the high-low table. You actually see them walking down the hall. It's very, very important. Uh, the shuffling gait in Parkinson's disease, for example, or the hesitation that you see in the Parkinsonian or supranuclear palsy where they, they just don't initiate that gait very well. You'll see it also with the initiation of movement. You'll tell someone, hey, you know, turn over on your left side and they'll, they'll look and they'll pause at you and, and it takes some time. That slowness or that hesitation is, is a brain-based types of effect that we see commonly. And if you see it, then you need to do some things that are brain-based. And, and that type of treatment is a little bit difficult, of course, on an audio tape. But the recognition of things are very, very important. People have got to be able to see things in order to know where they are. And they're going to use external uh, cues. And sometimes the visual axis may be different than what the inner ear is feeling or what the proprioceptors are are feeling so individuals may have a problem when the lights go down 
Uh, you're going to check this with your Romberg test. You're going to see how the person can stand with their eyes open and closed. And that is the basis that we use in, in posturography and other types of conditions. But some people may not even want to drive anymore. They're a little bit uh, scared to, to do a variety of, of different things. We know that different motor tasks can be compromised. And when a motor task is compromised or is abnormal, then the individual may load a joint wrong and injure that joint and come in to see you. So if these things happen, trivial types of injuries, I bent over to pick up a, a pound of butter and I threw my back out uh, sort of thing, don't just treat the segmental areas of the of the back. You need to do things to the brain to change that activation of the basal ganglionic integration of the thalamocortical pathways so that you can rehab the person uh, very, very appropriately. We know that when you have weakness of the spinal musculature that you're going to have problems, of course, with mobility of the trunk, but also problems with initiation of, of gait. People are not going to be walking so, so very well. You see this, of course, on a daily uh, basis. We know that the axial muscles are uh, fired as a consequence of integration in a very wonderful system in the ventral uh, pathways that descend through the spinal cord as a consequence of activation of the vestibular system, the proprioceptive system, and on and on it goes. We know that uh, dystonia is uh, such that we might have aberrancies in activation of different muscle groups so that we'll have posturing whether it be a simple torticollis or whether it be angulation of joints with or without tremor. Uh, in kids, uh, you'll oftentimes see an action dystonia. These are kids that like to walk on their toes, for instance. And toe walkers, we know, have an associated developmental visual alexia. They don't learn to read so very, very well. So if you've got a kid that's a toe walker, uh, don't try to go stretching on his, his or her Achilles tendons, mainly their boys. Uh, don't, don't really try to do that. Do things to their brain and their foot will come down. Uh, visual stimulation, eye exercises, uh, both in uh, saccades and pursuits. And there's a variety of things that are fairly complex, but you can learn uh, to do to change those types of individual um, activities. Uh, oftentimes, um, kids that are dystonic may seem perfectly normal at the beginning of the day, but after they exercise or they do something, it may become a little bit evident. We know that there's a whole load of diabetics out there that develop sensory ataxia. They, they develop uh, infarction or ischemia of their peripheral nerves, and they don't get that feedback to their cerebellum, and, and they're just not so very steady. We know that individuals with cerebellar lesions whether it's uh, from alcohol intoxication or whether it is from a variety of things associated with diascasis, uh, which means to say that your frontal lobe decreases and it decreases the activation of the cerebellum and the cerebellum goes a little bit south. All of these conditions are going to give you aberrant uh, truncal integrity, which means to say aberrant vertebral stability and a resultant unsteadiness and perhaps staggering types of gates, uh, the inability to walk uh, straightly, uh, have different concepts, sensory proprioceptive types of ataxia. People are 
worse when their eyes are closed. They may sway a little bit more. They may not know exactly where their feet are. They they may come in and say, you know, my feet feel funny. I got funny feelings in my feet. This is the, you know, walking on cotton wool, uh, spongy types of surfaces, etc. If you ask them, you'll find out that they uh, that they have this. We do know that one of the largest causes of death across all age groups are falls, and people are going to fall opposite of the side of brain lesions or to the side of pontomedullary lesions. Now, what does this mean? It means to say that if I have decreased activity in my left brain, I have a probability I'm going to fall to the right. If I have decreased uh, activation in my uh, left cerebellum, I'm going to fall to the left, or I'm going to fall to the same side of pontomedullary lesions, which means to say brain stem uh, from the pons down to the medulla, cerebellum, you fall to that same side or to the side opposite of brain. So when a person falls to the left, they may have a right decrease of brain activity or a left decrease of uh, cerebellar activity or pontine types of integration. So in other words, the same fall has a markedly different treatment depending upon the the area of the neuraxes that is associated with the individual condition. Well, I don't have the time to to give you the differential of how to uh, know which is a brain, which is a cerebellar or a brainstem. In the neurology diplomate program, we take a few years to to teach that, but it's something that is that is uh, well uh, documented and and not so difficult to learn. It's just a lot of stuff that takes a lot of individual uh, time and dedication, but the rewards, of course, are, are great for humankind. We know that uh, individuals that have proprioceptive disorders can trip, uh, their legs can give away, uh, they may be unsteady. Uh, the biggest problem we have are these backward falls, and you know the backward falls you're going to see in multiple system atrophy, you'll see it in uh, progressive supranuclear palsies, uh, the Parkinsonian patients. We also know that we can have joint pathology due to postural aberrations. For instance, we know that if you don't load a joint appropriately, that the joint will demineralize. So you may look at somebody that has you know rather good bone density, but they'll fracture a hip if they haven't loaded it uh, for a period of time. So if you're hypotonic on on one side, you're going to have a greater deviation to the side opposite of the hypotonia, uh, which means to say uh, you will not load, for instance, a hip on the left side if you're hypotonic on that side, and the hip can be remodeled and become degenerated, and you can break the hip and fall down, and away you go, and onwards and onwards and, and onwards. So joint pathology is very, very important when we look at stability. You can't be stable if your spine isn't stable. Uh, and you can't move if your spine uh, cannot move. So a part of a comprehensive neurological examination in all disciplines is using uh, computerized dynamic posturography. It is uh, mandated uh, for all hospitals and medical institutions to to do these fall prevention types of movements. It's not compulsory for chiropractors, uh, which is really not a compliment to us, but it's something that really uh, you should incorporate. And the posturographic uh, testing devices uh, are not so expensive. They can be uh, very expensive or they can be fairly cheap. The the platform that we use in our research, and we've got studies ongoing in collaboration in several institutions around the world. Uh, we are presenting three major papers 
uh, this year at the World Congress of, uh, of Gait and Brain, as well as some other ongoing activity. And we use a $30,000 uh, force plate uh, called the CAPS unit. But if you don't have that type of money, you can get a BIRTAC unit. You can get three BIRTAC units for the price of a CAPS unit. And if you don't have enough money for the BIRTAC unit, you can get a Schenkel scale, which gives you great information. You get about three of those for the price of a BIRTAC. So for a rather inexpensive activity, you can get a whole load of information that can help you understand the neurological consequences of your patients and then give you before and after consequences of your treatment. And if you uh, get these force plates, uh, you can contact the ACA Council on Neurology and we can help you uh, understand how to utilize it uh, appropriately. When you look at the movement of your patients, you've got to observe and you've got to see them moving. Many of us just see the patient once they're you know, in the room on the chiropractic table and uh, this is really not appropriate. You've got to see them walk. You've got to uh, ascertain whether their movements are smooth, whether they're effortless, whether their posture of their trunk is upright, if they have a scoliosis or bending. Uh, the, one of the biggest things you look at when people are walking is to ascertain whether they swing their arms fluidly from side to side. You're going to find that individuals may have a decreased arm swing for instance, uh, in a Parkinsonian patient or in a contralateral hemispheristic distribution or a paresis, that they'll decrease an arm swing before major symptoms will, will actually come about. So when they're walking, a decreased arm swing, you think of brain. Of course, you may have a frozen shoulder that can decrease that arm swing as well. So we have to look at the obvious. Is the stride length equal between individual legs. If you have a person stand up in a neutral position in your office and you take a measuring tape and you measure the distance between their, their two ankles or the malleoli, uh, internal malleoli, and you record that, you're going to find that frontal lobe lesions are associated with a widening of stance. Uh, and if you have this baseline, an individual patient whose stance widens, you're going to do frontal types of activities uh, for them to increase their, their activity. You're going to find in your Alzheimer's patients before they become demented or your Parkinsonian patients before they have their tremor that they're going to have uh, different uh, changes in their center of posture and a variety of other types of uh, conditions. The Parkinsonian patients we know are probably due to an alpha synucleinopathy, uh, a different topic that we can talk about. But basically, uh, these people uh, develop uh, aberrations of a sense of smell before they get tremor. They develop a uh, probability of posterior falls before they get tremor. Uh, they develop constipation because of the denervation of Myers and Auerbach's plexus with the alpha synucleinopathy. Uh, before they get their tremor or before they become uh, demented and they get autonomic denervation of the heart developing a cardiomyopathy with decreased integrity making them tired. Well, when we give them uh, levodopa or other types of uh, dopamine agonists, uh, these are generated to affect the tremor but they really do not affect uh, very, very much the integrity of the activities of daily living of the individual person. <coughs> so uh, your job is to affect the, <coughs> excuse me, the stability of these people, uh, a variety of other types of, 
effects. And you need to look at the synergy of motion between body parts. Are they stooped? Are they upright in their trunk? And we do different postural responses, such as a pull test, where you're going to have a person stand and say, hey, I'm going to try to pull you backwards, and I want to see how you respond. And and uh, you can take a step to stabilize. Well, a normal person, if you stand behind them and hold their shoulders and you give them a little jerk, they may have one step backwards and stabilize themselves. But an individual with decreased frontal lobe integrity uh, is going to have to take more than one step. We call this festination or abnormal pull test. You see it, of course, in the classic Parkinson's case, but you see it in a variety of neurological uh, conditions, and you will see it when you have aberrancies in truncal uh, stability. So the pull test, the individual stance, of course, is very important. We want to look at the individual when they start to walk, and when they walk, we want to say, do they have a problem starting their gait? This this start hesitation is very important in frontal lobe disorders, Parkinsonian patients. Is their stepping rhythm? What is the length of their stride? If you if you get like the old people used to do, is you take some headrest paper and you put it out over your your examination room and get the person's foot wet or put them in some little uh, dye and get them to walk on the headrest paper and and see uh, if there's a difference in the stride length from the left side to the right side. Or if you have a place on the beach, you can take your patients out and watch them walk in the individual uh, sand. How fast do they walk? Then the biggest deal, uh, what is the movement of their trunk and their arm swing? We want to do the standard types of tests, the heel-toe walking test that gives you motor integrity of the, the lower extremity and tells you whether you're going to have uh, a type of weakness that is located in these areas. The Romberg's test, which will allow you to see if there's a, a sensory disturbance between the the visual and the proprioceptive system, getting the person to stand up with their legs together and then close their eyes. But make sure you're there to catch them because you don't want them to fall. Uh, we find that sometimes dystonias or neurological syndromes can only be brought out if you get the people to do a different motor activity, uh, such as walking backwards or, or finding that they're going to run to see what's, what's going to happen. When you examine uh, a patient, uh, you want to examine them in the supine position so that you can look at their motor and sensory activity when it's not under the demands of gravity. That is to say, when someone is standing up or sitting, you may have a different examination than if they're lying down if they have truncal pathology. So when they're lying down, you can look at the bulk of their muscles, the tone of their muscles, the strength of their muscles. You can look at the strength and relate it to the uh, nerve, uh, peripheral nerve supply, the nerve root supply, and the suprasegmental supply. Is there a distributional aspect? Is it local? Is it a focal peripheral neuropathy? Is it central? Is it cord? Is it brainstem? Is it brain? The things that you're well trained to do. Uh, how is the movement? If there is movement, is it volitional or does it just happen on its own? Uh, can they roll over? Can they stand? Can they sit up? These, of course, the, the hallmarks in kids are things that in, in your patient population, sometimes people just can't do and it's going to give you a lot of information. So look at leg movement when they're not standing, which means to say you're you want to look at your uh, deep tendon reflexes and you know the ankle and the knee and the uh, hamstrings as well. And you know those nerve root levels. If you don't, grab yourself a 
Hoppenfeld book or something simple and review them. Uh, look at your sensation, which is your accurate touch, vibratory sensation, uh, movement of the individual joints as well as pain and temperature, and some coordinated activities such as the heel to shin test for cerebellar integrity and uh, metric activities where the person will try to point their toe towards your finger or a target. You want to look at the size and length of the uh, of the legs and the range of motion, uh, the posture that they're that they're exhibiting uh, should be good. You know, up like a soldier, you know that in frontal lobe disorders or uh, individuals with Parkinson's disease, uh, they will adopt a flexion of their trunk and a stooped posture in an attempt to take that posterior center of perceived pressure and move it forward. You know that if individuals are in pain or they're a little cautious, uh, that they're gonna have flexion of their hips and that flexion of their hips lowers their center of pressure and, and helps them to stabilize them. When you have flexion of your hips, it lowers your trunk, it shifts that center of gravity forwards. And you'll see this, of course, uh, resulting in compensation with psoas a spasm, these primary hip flexors, and there's none of you that each day does not see individuals that have tight psoases or psoas contractors, and you all know how to release those psoas contractors using a variety of techniques. Uh, when individuals have psoas contracture, they minimize posterior body sway. To say it differently, individuals that have a posterior center of pressure will usually be seen to have uh, so as contracture in order to compensate for that activity and to reduce the risk of falling uh, backwards. Uh, individuals that have extension of their neck and trunk are seen in frontal lobe disease. They're oftentimes seen in supranuclear palsies. We don't like that. We know when you see someone with a hyperlordosis, these are neurological uh, problems, not orthopedic. They can be caused by hip girdle weakness, uh, they're classically seen in the proximal myopathies, and uh, these individual patients will present with uh, paraspinal uh, rigidity of muscles and spasticity or spasm. They may have tilting of the individual trunk so that we know that the dystonic patients, individuals that have aberrations in the indirect pathway of the basal ganglia, will have axial muscle spasms that will result in a tilt of the the trunk and individuals that do have trunk tilts are going to have exaggerated flexion movements of the trunk and hip with each step in the in the uh, the gait cycle. Uh, other things that can cause these trunk tilts, uh, particularly lesions physiologically in the thalamus and the basal ganglia, of course, uh, vascular lesions will also cause the same activity where the trunk will tilt away from the affected side. We have a syndrome in neurology that we refer to as the pusher syndrome. Well, the pusher syndrome is something that you see you know, quite readily in your practice. Uh, individuals will perceive that they have a tilt when they really don't. That is to say, they have a sensory mismatch between what their labyrinthine vestibular system is, is seeing and their proprioceptive system is seeing. Uh, this is also associated with posterolateral hemorrhages of the thalamus, but uh, we see it quite often in physiological types of types of lesions. Individuals uh, that have their neck manipulated are always concerned. The doctor is concerned with uh, pica uh, or these brainstem cerebellar infarcts so that 
the lateral medullary syndrome, the Wallenberg syndrome, is such that individuals may develop lateral pulsion where they'll sway or tilt towards the side of a lesion. They may have an acute uh, vestibular imbalance and not a lateral medullary system, but you want to make sure uh, of what's happening before you do your manipulations. You don't have to be worried so much about uh, some abnormal consequences and something that is very rare, but we have to be realistic, of course, in our treatment of, of humankind. So at the end of the day, we find that the chiropractor who's involved with the treatment and the diagnoses of spinal abnormalities is really looking at a window of brain activation which results in integrity of the truncal musculature, of the spinal musculature, which allows us to move appropriately or that all movement of the limbs, the arms and the legs are dependent upon the integration of integrity in the spinal neuraxis and that integrity is a brain-based concomitant of basal ganglionic integration. When we look at our clinical expertise, we find that the more things we can do to recognize these, these problems, the more things we can do to treat them, and looking at a recognition as a window of change to see whether our treatment is successful or non-successful. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on CareInstitute.com.